you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Liberal Soul. My name is Luke Mason. So for today, we're going to be doing a text that I am pretty excited to talk about because this is something that was pretty influential for me. It remains so, but it certainly was in my young adult time. That text today is going to be the 1841 essay, Self-Reliance, by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I recently reread this to record this episode, and... I've read it probably, I don't know, maybe 10 to 12 times in my life. And I first read it, I think, when I was about 24. I think that's when a friend introduced it to me. And probably for, if any of you've read it, you'll kind of know that this essay specifically, and Ralph Waldo Emerson is one of my all-time Prometheans. He uh, was one of the leading literary writers of what is now called the Transcendentalist Movement, which included um, one of his protégés, Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. The only other name I recognize when I look through their lists on Wikipedia is Thomas Carlyle, and I can't even remember what he wrote. But the Transcendentalists were these writers in kind of like still the first era of the USA, like 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, that were really writing about nature and foraging the kind of path intellectually of what this new country might be. And in fact, I believe it was in 1837, Ralph Waldo Emerson gave a speech at Harvard called The American Scholar, which later was referenced by William James, the great American philosopher and psychologist, as uh, and and I, William James, and I'm I hope I'm getting this right. Referenced that speech that Emerson gave as America's intellectual declaration of independence. So even though I won't be talking about the American Scholar today, that is a pretty phenomenal speech slash text as well. And I recommend any listener interested in this kind of writing to take a look at that one. But self reliance. So the body of this text, I feel like, is such a great literary and even borderline poetic encapsulation of the philosophy behind the liberal soul. So the conception of this entire podcast is capturing what it's like to be a person who's self-possessed, self-curious, and then that curiosity extended to the world curious about other people, curious about other cultures, curious about what's going on both in themselves and in others. And then that can be extended into nature, into the arts, into all that kind of stuff. And 
Ralph Waldo Emerson, we'll get into a bit more, but the themes of this essay are so much in contradiction to prevailing social norms at his time around conformity and thinking as a group or society, the tension, the the perennial tension between the individual and the society in which they happen to find themselves. Now, obviously, a lot of writers have written about that throughout the ages, but I just think that there's something really unique and, for me personally, quite thunderingly personal about the way Emerson writes about these motifs in self-reliance. And so I thought I'd take some time today to just kind of go through some of my favorite bits of the essay. Um, I really highly recommend you read Self-Reliance. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can, it's old enough now, you could easily just find a copy online. It's about 50 pages though, so not maybe not the easiest essay to read online. But if you haven't ever done it, I highly recommend it. Um, but I think I want to go through the essay just to kind of... There's There are some things about Emerson that have floored me and I think are worth talking about in the context of this podcast. So the essay begins. I read the other day some verses written by an eminent painter which were original and not conventional. The soul always hears an admonition in such lines. Let the subject be what it may. The sentiment they instill is of more value than any thought they may contain. To believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Speak your latent conviction and it shall be the universal sense. For the inmost in due time becomes the outmost, and our first thought is rendered back to us by the trumpets of the last judgment. So notwithstanding the flowery prose, which you (laughs) immediately must get used to when you're reading Emerson, this idea of to believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Now, obviously, these are things that this isn't a notion you can take quite literally (laughs) in that everything you think is true for everybody else. But what's beginning to be got at here by Emerson is the idea that what he talks about at the very beginning of that passage, he noticed something, the sentiment instilled by this painter was greater to him than any content the painter had. You notice authenticity, you notice reflection, you notice consideration, thoughtfulness, a unique perspective. When you come across a piece of work by an artist or a writer, that's the kind of stuff that can emanate from them. Um, So for me, like this is the, when I read a Kurt Vonnegut novel, for example, I get just this rush of, oh, okay, this person has put a, a new personalized spin on their observation that they're making in this book and this is something I feel in any domain like I remember I still remember in high school the first time I listened to Led Zeppelin and hearing it and being like wow I have never heard a band like this before now music is a pretty easy example maybe because music is so much about affecting your emotions but I think what what's cool about this essay is that it begins, and and I don't know if I probably should have mentioned this off the top. So Emerson is kind of compared often to Nietzsche. There's a very there's a there's a big similarity in the way that they are talked about in the canon of writers and philosophy. And Emerson was actually a, a, apparently a big influence on Nietzsche. And 
there's something about the style of this essay that I think would be most impactful to people in their late teens, early 20s, mid 20s, because that's kind of when I got introduced to it. And when I read it now, I still feel the impulse behind it. But it's it it doesn't quite have the same explosiveness that it did when I was 24 and I read it for the first time. I think probably for me, the reason for that is that I've actually kind of internalized a lot of the thoughts in this essay, self-reliance, and taken them on board in my kind of like day-to-day operating system in a way that I might not have when I was then. So it was a revelation. So anyway, the continuation of this thought, to believe your own thought is to believe that what is true in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius. It's kind of like in the admonition of trusting your own mind and trusting your own thoughts about things and not just being taken in by the most eloquent or rhetorically savvy person that is around you during any moment and i think this is something i struggled with a lot as a young person was and and i think this is not uncommon is you you look up to the people and you listen to the adults in your life who as a young person you don't have the savvy to understand that adults are often just as insecure and unsure about the world as you are, but they're just bigger and stronger, so you have to listen to them kind of thing. And there's something really beautiful about the burgeoning beginning of of a time in life where you realize that you can think for yourself about things, that you can trust your own deliberation skills to start thinking about the problems of the world. So anyway, a little later on the first page, the essay continues... In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this. They teach us to abide by our spontaneous impressions with a good-humored inflexibility than most when the whole cry of voices is on the other side. Else tomorrow a stranger will say with masterly good sense precisely what we have thought and felt at the same time, and we will be forced to take with shame our own opinion from another. Yeah, I I think another thing I love about Emerson is his ability to, because one of the other things I really want to think about on this podcast is the connection between psychology and philosophy. These being my two favorite intellectual disciplines, I'm I'm always I'm like eternally curious about how they interact and what I love about Emerson is that he he seems in in his essays he writes about not just what is going on but how he how he kind of knows people think about it. And so in this vein I just love how Emerson is able to point out this kind of psychological phenomenon that I certainly have noticed in myself and in others is where when you don't have like the courage to say your own thought someone else does and in a in a kind of like i don't know the right word in a less embarrassing way maybe it's kind of like the phenomenon around when a teacher or a professor in a class asks you or any of the students to ask a question because the chances are several other people have that question and i've that's happened lots i remember lots in university where (laughs) someone would ask a question i'd be like oh thank god that person asked that question because that's exactly what i was thinking There's kind of an inverse of this where there's like a double-edged sword of admiration and shame when someone with clarity expresses an opinion that we also have, but we were were unsure or not quite, I don't know, brave is not the right word, not quite 
feeling like it was important enough to express our opinion. And I think there's the admiration comes from being happy that someone did and the shame being like, oh, I could have done that and I chose not to. Emerson writes with this stuff with such intimacy that I think it's stuff he struggled with and then was able to at least overcome in the sense that he could write about it with cogency and comprehensiveness. That's part of what makes this essay self-referentially amazing is that the amount of self-overcoming and knowledge that Emerson had to put into writing this essay shows self-reliance. This was a conversation I had with a friend once is that, and I'm a nerd for this kind of stuff, is like, there's no way you can write self-reliance without being extremely self-reliant, both in practice and in pretension. (laughs) And so that's something I really... I've always chewed on is like part of the liberal soul, I think, is not having to live with shame, your own opinion coming from the lips of other people when it could come from you, because then you're not reaching that potential of self and not self in a metaphysical sense, but self as in like knowing you left it all on the table. You know, there's this uh, in sports, I remember one of the cardinal sins of sports is just leaving effort, not not giving it your all. Even if you lost the game, if you lacked effort, that was the real sin. If you'd left anything on the table, if you hadn't given all of yourself out to something, um, especially from a, a point of view of effort in like hockey, let's say, that's what you regret. And I think that there's a correlate here with intellectual and moral and ethical life is if you know you have something to give the world and whether through self-distrust or a desire to not rock the boat of whatever kind of culture or subculture or town or society you're in, this is what Emerson is really plugging away at here at the beginning of the essay. But that brings us to my absolute favorite, one of my favorite paragraphs ever, actually. I'm not going to say it's my all-time favorite paragraph in literature, but it's right up there. So here's what Emerson writes next that I, probably my favorite part of the essay for sure. There's a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, and that he must take himself for better or worse as his portion, that though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given for him to till. Envy is ignorance, imitation is suicide. I have always told friends I don't ever plan on getting a tattoo, but if I ever did, it would probably be those uh, six words in, I don't even know where, maybe on my calves. (laughs) Envy is ignorance, imitation is suicide. So envy is a emotion I've talked a lot about on my other podcast, Really True Fiction, with my cousin David, about how it just seems like such a vapid and self-destructive feeling but it's 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 so much more than that it's um to be envious of what someone else has belies an assumption that they got it unfairly let's say now that can be the case i'm not saying that that can't be the case but when i think of the people that i've come across that i admire the most that have what i would say exercised their liberal souls to the highest degrees. I'm thinking of like musicians, Dave Grohl, Tom Morello, you know, Jimmy World. These are people who've worked and worked and worked so hard to get where they are. 
you know, this is a juvenile feeling. I would feel I'd go to concerts as a teenager and I would just kind of be jealous of the guys on stage. Like, oh, I wish that was me. And one of the beauties, I guess, of aging has been come to just purely appreciate what I see and enjoy it and realize how much richer it makes the world. And then the second part, imitation is suicide. Reminds me of a Jim Jarmusch quote, the filmmaker who he wrote. It's hard to be original because so many things have been done before, but be authentic because that's puts your own spin on culture and the world. Imitation in Emerson's language here is like copying, direct copying, let's say. I guess plagiarism. <laughs> and what's so great about the this imitation of suicide is that even if you've fooled everybody else with your imitation, you haven't fooled yourself and you know that you haven't made it yourself. And unless you're like a total sociopath, that won't that won't fill you up. And that's what I mean. This is what I love about trying to conceptualize in the liberal soul the 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 relationship between psychology and liberalism and psychology and philosophy is that uh, it needs to start from the first person. There's an even deeper level than the social social strata you find yourself in. It's like what what are the chambers of your own mind telling you? And with Emerson speaking directly about people's experience, and there comes a time in your life when no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him, but through the to- his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given for him to till. This is like the moment in life where you realize that you got to tend your own garden. You want to make your own thing. You want to... You've learned and learned and learned, and there's always homages to be paid, and that's not the same as imitation. But... You want to start making your own things, putting your own mark on art and culture and creativity and thought. And I can tell you that, like, I, I play guitar and I love it. And I love covers. I love playing songs, sing-alongs, people know. But there's something unbelie- like astronomically more satisfying to actually write your own song. And I've written about 10 songs in my life. There's no feeling like it, that's for sure. So this this idea that not only can you start out on your own in a creative sense, but uh, that's actually what is going to need to happen <laughs> to be a fulfilled, fulfilled artist, fulfilled thinker, fulfilled person, stretching the bounds of your own capabilities. Ah, just the beautiful language that he uses. So here's what I love. Here's a good, this probably takes us well into his um, concept of nonconformity, which is a bit of a cliche now, but wouldn't have been, I don't think, when he was writing. And obviously you can make non-cliche, non-conformist arguments now. (laughs) You could be glib about it and say, I'm as non-conformist as everybody else. There's a cynical part of me that's like, well, that that's just nonconformity. Uh, what would you say? Nonconformity has been commercialized, so it's it's cool now. <laughs> but what I think is so great about Emerson is that he he really points out that true nonconformity is actually really hard. It's it's not an easy thing to buck the trend. Maybe it's easy to be a critic of. It's a lot easier to be the critic of a church of the church now than it was, let's say, a hundred years ago. So there's something a little bit more impressive, I think, of people who are dissidents or critics of a social or political institution at the height of its powers, not as it's waning in the cultural hegemony of 
an era. But anyway, here is Emerson reminiscing. I remember an answer which when quite young I was prompted to make to a valued advisor who was wont to importune me with the dear old doctrines of the church. On my saying, what have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within? My friend suggested, but these impulses may be from below, not from above. I replied, they do not seem to me to be such, but if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. No law can be sacred to me but of my nature. You know, because he brings up the word church in that segment, that's the example I'll use for my life, is that um, I remember, I just remember the tension I had, especially as a teenager, with different traditions and, for lack of a better term, laws, very strict cultural norms that might as well have been laws in, in the Christian culture I was a part of at the time. And the way that I conceived about the world, that tension was so psychologically troubling for me because of how much it felt like these kind of traditions of Christianity were not flexible to the era I was living in and not flexible to the kind of people I knew. And I just didn't have the language or the consideration of, you know, these extra 15 years of life to feel like I was not actually crazy. <laughs> in those things. And in a book I'm sure we'll I'll do eventually on this podcast, Brothers Karamazov, I could never have phrased it like this at the time, but one of the great things about that book was um, the, the argument made by the middle brother Ivan, where he said that even if God exists, he's not good enough for us. If God does exist, he's less moral than people, and he doesn't deserve my praise. Now, that's a that's like the end of the continuum here. But like, I remember reading that book for the first time when I was like maybe 22, 23, and thinking, wow, that is a revolutionary thought in that humans can be, humans can make more ar- moral arguments than it appears God <laughs> has placed in the world. Because in the book, Ivan Karamazov is talking about a little girl who was left outside in an outhouse by her parents in the winter and was frozen to death and it was of punishment and then he extrapolated that any god that could let this happen to a child basically wasn't worthy of any ethical person's admiration it's quite convincing the underlying principle there is that in the book ivan is able to use his own powers of thinking his own mind to come to that kind of conclusion versus like what would have been the more certainly at the time even when I was a kid growing up is like, well, God works in mysterious ways. And even though it's terrible, this is what gives us free will. <laughs> Basically I'm boiling all of the shrug excuse making into a boilerplate answer that I would often get from religious types when I would ask those kind of questions, although not that well articulated is from that novel. And, um, Part of the whole tenor of this essay, Self-Reliance, is about being able to trust the integrity of your own mind versus these old laws and traditions and things that are foisted upon you because of where you grow up and how you grow up. And I think that this is just buffeted by lines he writes here. I am ashamed to think how easily we capitulate to badges and names, to large societies and dead institutions. Every decent and well-spoken individual affects and sways me more than is right. I ought to go upright and vital and speak the rude truth in all ways. 
If malice and vanity were the code of philanthropy, shall that pass? This particular line, if malice and vanity were the code of philanthropy, shall that pass? It actually really makes me think of the modern day phenomenon of virtual virtue signaling online. Um, and in like, you could make evolutionary psychology arguments around like trying to find low cost, high reward ways of signaling yourself to your group or your tribe. What I share in common with Emerson's temperament is a distaste for, I guess what I call the symbolic era or the token era, where it feels like all you have to do is say the right thing in a meeting or online. And that's like the extent of the effort you have to do into improving the cause that you are <laughs> so-called caring about that's a much deeper topic that i would want to be more specific about but i think the principle here again is like how do you feel about people who you really just don't believe you think are phony but are taking on the case of a good thing so here's the next part i wanted to read out what i must do is all that concerns me not what the people think this rule, equally arduous in actual and in intellectual life, may serve for the whole distinction between greatness and meanness. It is harder because you will always find those who think that they know what is your duty better than you know it. It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after our own. But the great man is he who in the midst of the crowd keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. And this is what I think something... The real life example I'll give here is this is something I think Jordan Peterson does extremely well, is that he can be talking to a crowd, three, four, five thousand in a theater when he back when he did his biblical lectures and his some of his debates, and he still manages to feel like he's talking to a one on one person in a conversation. Now he's made this explicit point a few times actually, in how he he tries to focus on one or two or three people and like as if he's talking to them. But I think we all kind of know like how different it is to talk to a person one-on-one -on -one or even in a group of three or four versus like when they're giving a lecture to a hundred people, let's say, or just like the sociology around different tones and styles and tenors. And I think, although it's not like a one-to-one -one correlation, the correlation is quite high between the amount of people being talked to in the room and the kind of more banal or euphemistic forms of talking, um, non-committal, not really sure. Whereas what Emerson and Peterson is in a real life example is like he, he maintains that sweetness of solitude, even in a crowd. The opinions aren't watered down. They're not changed. They're not made more sanitized or palatable or made as like a purely kind of uh, like a political point where you really just don't <laughs> where you talk and you don't say anything and I think that that's like such a great insight where it's so easy to and I feel it in myself all the time whenever I've talked in front of a group of people like the pressure to be a little bit less detailed, less of the conviction that you might have had if you were just talking to one or two people, especially if they're friends. And yet, I've, I've, I'm often enraptured by Peterson's lectures, uh, certainly the uh, biblical ones. And so I think that there's an interesting 
there's like a really deep thought there about this the what is how does he phrase it again the perfect sweetness of the independence of solitude emerson continues the objection to conforming to usages that have become dead to you is that it scatters your force it loses your time and blurs the impression of your character if you maintain a dead church contribute contribute to a dead Bible society, vote with a great party, either for the government or against it, spread your table like base housekeepers. Under all these screens, I have difficulty to detect the precise man you are. Um, Side note, apologies for the gendered language, but it was 1841. Back to it. And of course, so much force is withdrawn from your proper life. But do your work, and I shall know you. Do your work, and you shall reinforce yourself. A man must consider what a blind man's buff is this game of conformity if i know your sect i anticipate your argument i hear a preacher announce for his text and topic the expediency of one of the institutions of his church do i not know beforehand that not possibly can he say a new and spontaneous word i I think it's a different essay maybe it's the american scholar it's uh what you do speak so loud i can't hear what you say do your work and i will know you this is the payoff of nonconformity: is that you follow your work and there will be so many thoughtful, educated, intelligent people who are interested in what you're doing. And I've always said to many friends, to me, one of the best higher order pleasures in life is having a real authentic conversation with another intelligent and educated person who can think for themselves. It's honestly a rush. (laughs) It's one of my favorite things in life. And Emerson is pointing out that it is noticed, I guess. If nothing else, it's, it is it is noticed by other intelligent and thoughtful people. And I've seen this. I've, I've seen, I worked at a, a camp as a kind of associate director a couple of years ago. And kids overnight camp is a demanding job. I was working 17 hours a day. And I just noticed the people who were also working as hard as me or harder or whatever, right? But... This is a topic I'd want to get into maybe somewhere else a little bit more, but I think humans really thrive when their feedback mechanisms come from the environment and not just from their peers or their colleagues because the environment is really unforgiving. And so you have to do it right or do it well. So like at a camp, you have to (laughs) set up the tent before it rains and you could set up the tent in one way and every one of your colleagues who didn't help you set up the tent say it's great and then it rains and it just gets flooded and the feedback mechanism from your peers is irrelevant because you're soaking wet in the tent as opposed to the feedback mechanism from the environment where if you sent the tent up right and you don't get wet when you sleep (laughs) this kind of thing Uh, there's tons of examples you can give in this vein and so when the feedback mechanisms from the environment are so pronounced, like it is when you're living out at a camp, and like that's nothing compared to like, you know, before civilization. The tangent is this is something I think that we're really losing in modern Western culture is most people don't have to live, don't have jobs, and don't have like a day-to-day life where their feedback mechanisms really come from the environment. And I don't just mean the physical environment, although that's a huge part of it. I mean, like, or, or I guess what I mean is that most of our work slash life environments are, are now mediated through other people who obviously will have their own thoughts, agendas, maybe not always interests, not always aligned with our own. You can think about it like bureaucracies, obviously, so much of bureaucracies are based on individual people within these 
managerial classes or administrations jockeying for future position and it's kind of like a it's almost a perverse form of theater if you ask me but even like we don't have to go find our own electricity we just have to talk to the elect the person on the other end of the phone about our electricity we don't have to go find our own internet we just go talk to the person from whatever company that provides us our internet we don't have to we don't even, we don't have to fix our own toilets like obviously some people do and they can save money but we just call like there's just there's no surprise to me that in 2021, this is when this recording is happening, it's still the people in the trades who seem the least taken with <laughs> fads. But that's again, <laughs> even though I say it's a whole other topic, I talk about it for so long. Sorry. This is kind of how I am. <laughs> so one of my favorite lines comes from this. Character teaches above our wills. Men imagine that they communicate their virtue or vice only by overt actions, and do not see that virtue or vice emit a breath every moment. Now, I think this is one of the lines that probably was really resonant to William James, who came, you know, half a century after Emerson intellectually anyway. Because this poetic take is very much in line with uh, James's argument of radical empiricism, where we're not just being judged, our virtue and vice aren't just being judged in our grand gestures, but in our day-to-day life, in any given moment. And I think what is so great about this is that this is what this is what Emerson means by character. And this is probably what James would talk about character if he was talking about it in a moral sense. I think he, like radical empiricism, he's talking more in a philosophical sense about like the importance of taking seriously every single thing that happens to you, not just the things that seem worth writing about (laughs) or captivating of attention, but all the little things too. And this is a really awesome way to to focus and think about it, I think, is that uh, in a very kind of David Foster Wallace sense, knowing that your character is being presented to the world, not just in your grand moments, but in all the little in-between silly moments or or boring moments as well, allows you to live more consciously, I think. It's just as important to hold the door open for the stranger as it is for your boss, let's say. It's just as important to be polite. This is something quite good in the Christian ethic. I think it's just as important to be polite to, you know, to use an old time word, a ragamuffin as it is to the CEO. It's just as important to, the the heuristic I might use is that I always strive to be a really good customer. Now that's partly because I, my first jobs were in kind of service slash retail slash restaurants. And I really, (laughs) observed how appreciative I was of polite and kind customers versus entitled and self-righteous ones. And I always like that, that experience helped me to see like, Oh, I'm always going to be a good customer. And I think, I think that there, there's almost certainly a lack of self-awareness, if not a lack of conscious reflection on part of virtue. Part of your virtue is how you treat, you know, the guy who works at Subway, <laughs> that kind of thing. And the fact that this is something written about, you know, what is this, like 180 years ago now, is one of my favorite things. I call it the echoes through the ages. When you read things from history that you've observed in your own life, you just feel that much more connected to 
um, I guess, the grandeur of your species, not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> so this is just another line um, that I wanted to bring up in the essay. I will stand here for humanity, and though I would make it kind, I would make it true. Now, I don't need to dwell on this for very long, other than one of the things I want to be kind of exploring and talking about and growing with in this podcast is something I'm also calling hard-nosed liberalism, which is a term I, I mean, I didn't invent, obviously. The one I can, the, the most close I can think of is from Daniel Dennett as like a hard-nosed philosopher, let's say, but the hard as a hard-nosed form of liberalism, which is still very much committed to what is true in all of its facets. And though, though I would make it kind, and Emerson's phrasing, I want to be kind. I, I have no aspirations of cruelty or anger or disinterest in your life. I don't want to pander to a delusion or an illusion. I guess what, how I would put it is that it's much less respectful, even though it's like it has the patina of respectfulness or the veneer of respectfulness. I think it's much more respectful to hold people to truth more than their own uh, feelings, even if you seem to be, quote unquote, sacrificing kindness in the short term. I think that's a very short-sighted form of respect. Maybe that could be a longer conversation, but that's just kind of my take on it. (laughs) Anyone familiar with William James can see what he liked in Emerson, because here's another line that I think would have been, or, or a section that I think would have been very much in keeping with William James's work. Discontent is the want of self-reliance. It is infirmity of will. Regret calamities if you can, thereby help the sufferer. If not, attend to your own work, and already the evil begins to be repaired. Our sympathy is just as base. We come to them who weep foolishly and sit down and cry for company. Instead of imparting to them truth and health and rough electric shocks, putting them once more in communication with their own reason. This is kind of in line with what the last point was around um, compassion isn't, like being compassionate to someone who's truly suffering is not um, paternalism or condescending. But Emerson's talking about, how does he phrase it? Who weep foolish foolishly and cry for company i guess the more kind of insincere attention seeking or self-pitying maybe is a good way to put it i think we can all kind of recognize the element of self-pity certainly in ourselves and in others and the way that's so great about how it's formed in this essay is that emerson is saying no it's actually way more respectful to put people with hard hard hard-nosed truth back in touch with their own reason, their own ability to understand that they have some sort of agency over this situation that they are involved in. And even if it's not particularly flattering to them, that doesn't mean that they're incapable of addressing it. And in this sense, treating them as their highest form of an adult who can handle their problems. And not just treating them such, but explicitly reminding them of such. And I think that there's something so powerful about that sentiment which is like kind of i don't know it just doesn't feel like the fad or the trend of of our culture right now uh the kind of indulgence of self and the indulgence of entitlement even the indulgence of rights 
is like the opposite of this. Like the slight, the smallest slight gives you the biggest right out for a grievance against some governing body or some ephemeral or ethereal group. And back to like the first person liberalism that I'm talking about, I just don't think that will give anyone internally. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a snake oil. It's not, it's not an internal first person sense of meaning. It's infirmity of the will. Discontent is the want of self-reliance. And so there's one other major part of this essay that I wanted to talk about because it's about travel. And at first blush, it seems a little strange because it feels like Emerson is against traveling the world, but I think not. So I'll read it. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but I think it's important. The soul is no traveler. The wise man stays at home, and when his necessities, his duties, on any occasion call him from his house or into foreign lands, he is at home still and shall make men sensible by the expression of his countenance that he goes, the missionary of wisdom and virtue, and visits cities and men like a sovereign and not like an interloper or a valet. I have no churlish objection to the circumnavigation of the globe for the purposes of art, of study, and benevolence, so that the man is first domesticated or does not go abroad with the hope of finding somewhat greater than he knows. He who travels to be amused or to get somewhat which he does not carry travels away from himself and grows old even in youth among old things. In Thebes, in Palmyra, his will and mind have become old and dilapidated as they. He carries ruins to ruins." Traveling is a fool's paradise. Our first journeys discover to us the indifference of places. At home, I dream that at Naples, at Rome, I can be intoxicated with beauty and lose my sadness. I pack my trunk, embrace my friends, embark on the sea, and at last wake up in Naples. And there beside me is the stern fact, the sad self, unrelenting, identical, that I fled from. I seek the Vatican and the palaces. I affect to be intoxicated with sights and suggestions, but I am not intoxicated." My giant goes with me wherever I go. So this whole little section here is about, not about anti-travel, which he talks about for art, for study, for benevolence, which is some of like benevolence being like the interaction of different peoples. And, you know, I lived in South Korea for three and a half years, and I can tell you that that kind of travel is amazing and seeing different places and learning. And I mean, I think specifically one time, in 2014, I visited a friend in Shanghai and we went to the Chinese Museum of Propaganda and just seeing, like, learning about how the kind of posters and signages that the Chinese people were getting from their government during that time, as opposed to, like, you just didn't see that side of the propaganda so much. We got a lot of the American propaganda, but not so much the Chinese propaganda. And just, like, being able to compare and contrast was such a great element of intellectual growth for me that certainly wouldn't have happened if I hadn't traveled there. I mean, I guess you could look at pictures, but I just don't know how, like all things Chinese, I don't know how on the internet that stuff is. <laughs> but what he's talking about is, and I, and I certainly see this in my generation and the generation after mine, and probably the one before, there's kind of like the, I think it's the idea that wanderlust once satiated will bring you peace. Emerson's point in all this is that travel as a kind of cultish form of self-improvement is only going to disappoint you and wreck your wallet, (laughs) for one thing, in that you're not going to find 
you know, to quote Bono, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yourself is with you everywhere you go. That's the one constant. Your brain, your emotions, your thoughts, the way you conceive of the world, that is what is with you. And if you can have it be your giant goes with you wherever you go, you will travel as a sovereign and not as an interloper. And then I think that will dovetail real nice to the last part, the very last sentence or last couple sentences, because this is a good encapsulation on that last point in the essay in general. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. Yeah, that's self-reliance. Again, I've really only scratched the surface, I've realized. I've quoted like a couple lines, and it's like a 50-page essay. So again, I really highly encourage you to read it. But again, the liberal soul, as I'm conceiving it, is someone who doesn't feel entitled, but does trust their own mind. The liberal soul doesn't need to go advertise sporadically or with their gun half-cocked the endeavors that they're involved in. They're pulled by their curiosity of the world. And part of that curiosity of the world is going to necessarily entail that they're able to think about things on their own. And I can tell you that for me personally, every time I start to sense discontent in something in my life seeping into my mental faculties, immediately it's like a little bell goes off, like ding. This is infirmity of the will, Luke. This is the want of self-reliance happening to you uh, in real time. And you can, (laughs) I do think you can choose to overcome it. And when that starts to happen, I think, okay, well, I need to take some sort of step to solve this problem now. And I need to put the agency back into my own being. And um, this is what I think Emerson's great lasting effect is in culture. I mean, he's got these beautiful essays about nature. He's got beautiful essays about history and the oversoul, which I think is a better version of Nietzsche's Superman. I think basically everything, all the best parts of Nietzsche are in Emerson and a little better in Emerson. It's just that he wrote a lot less in total than Nietzsche did. And Nietzsche went a lot further in some other things. And so... That's why I think Nietzsche is a more famous writer and philosopher. But I think all of the best parts of Nietzsche are in Emerson and all the kind of negative parts of Nietzsche are done better in Emerson as well. So if you're philosophically inclined, that's an interesting comparison you could make between the two. I've always been enraptured by Emerson and his essays, and I would highly encourage all of you to, again, to read them. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of The Liberal Soul with me, Luke Mason. And I hope you have a really good day, and uh, I really hope that you can find some time to read some Ralph Waldo Emerson, because he's an amazing, amazing writer. Mm